Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company offer flexible budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. An experiment. Why is light so far? Like it sounds so simple. They had no idea. But now the data speaks. I find this not only refreshing, but but at some level astounding. Nature. Welcome back to the Nature Podcast. This week, tiny flying sensors inspired by seeds and the latest updates from the Nature Briefing. I'm Noah Baker. And I'm Benjamin Thompson. First up this week, electronic chips that fly. Or, if not fly, at least fall with style. Here's Shamli Bundell. You've probably noticed that electronics have been shrinking. Phones, cameras, speakers, hard drives. Over the last few decades engineers keep fitting more components into less space. This miniaturization has been of great use to scientists, avoiding the need to lug huge bits of kit around to collect data in the field. But John Rogers and his team saw an opportunity to make even better use of miniaturized electronics for things like environmental monitoring. They imagined thousands and thousands of miniature devices spread over a wide area, which could be designed to measure light or heat or chemicals, providing a high-resolution map of whatever it is you want to monitor. Here's John. If that's your vision, the question becomes, how do you distribute these devices? And we began to think about how nature does that. John needed an example of an organism that can distribute tiny, important payloads over a wide area without having to physically carry them there. The obvious template was plant seeds. Evolution has developed some very sophisticated ways for doing that in a completely passive manner developing seeds that float through the air like a parachute or spin and rotate like helicopters. And that rotational motion stabilizes the flight and the falling trajectory and also slows the rate of falling. So our goal in this project was to try to capture those key principles in aerodynamics and apply them to electronic technologies. The team used aerodynamics experiments and computer models to design electronic chips with wings, three-dimensional, three-winged shapes that spin like a seed as they fall slowly to earth. These flyers can be made in various sizes, the smallest less than a millimetre across, but making them tiny was the easy part. The problem is that when electronic chips are made using normal manufacturing methods, they're flat or planar, so the team had to find a way to turn flat chips into 3D shapes. And so what we've been able to do is create planar structures that serve as precursors. And the way that we do that really exploits principles that are similar to those that you would see in a pop-up book. 
So we create these planar structures and then we bond them to a rubber substrate that's slightly stretched. And when we relax that stretch, it creates compressive forces that move certain of those structures up out of a plane to form the kind of wing-like geometries that we ultimately need. The flyers they've made carry tiny antennae so that they can communicate wirelessly, along with a solar cell for power, memory storage, and, importantly, a sensor. John proposes that you could use a number of different sensing elements, depending on what kind of data you wanted to collect. One specific example that we demonstrated in this paper is designed to monitor particulates in the air, so levels of pollution, as a function of altitude. The fact that the devices fall relatively slowly through the air would make them great for monitoring the atmosphere. Alternatively, they could be dropped over areas where it's difficult for people to get to. Other suggested applications include monitoring a chemical spill in an environment or tracking the presence of a disease. Another option, which is actually the simplest strategy for sensing, is to use a non-electronic approach, to use colorimetric chemical reagents embedded in the flyer structures themselves designed to respond to a species of interest in the environment, pH, for example, or heavy metal concentration, so that these kinds of colorimetric flyers could be distributed across an area, and then high-resolution digital imaging could be used to read out the concentration through measurements of color across an area. But then what happens to all the tiny electronic devices you've now scattered across your study site? In a parallel set of efforts, we've been very interested in environmentally degradable electronic devices made out of degradable polymers, compostable conductors, integrated circuit chips that just naturally dissolve and disappear as they interact with groundwater, for example. And we actually have devices that have those characteristics. So aside from biodegradable chips, what's next for John's tiny flying electronics? The other thing that we're thinking about is how to add active flight capabilities. So not something that just falls like a seed, but something that could fly away, you know, like a house fly or something like that. That's much more challenging, obviously, but We have piezoelectric materials that we can use to flap the wings. And that's probably a longer-term effort, but something that we think could be interesting. That was John Rogers from Northwestern University talking to Sharmini Bundell. You can see the flying electronics in action over on our YouTube channel and read all about them in John's paper. There'll be links to both of those in the show notes. Coming up, we'll be hearing about the mysteries of the sun's super-hot corona. That's in this week's briefing chat. But before that, Dan Fox is here with the research highlights. Do you ever listen to the Nature Podcast while out for a stroll? Well, a new analysis of walking patterns and attention suggests that this sort of multitasking on the move should be a breeze. Researchers collected data from eight adults as they walked on a treadmill. All eight were fitted with an exoskeleton a powered leg brace that allowed the scientists to add pressure to the participants' lower limbs, making it more difficult for them to walk at a normal pace. When pressure was applied, the walkers took longer, slower steps than usual, the most energetically efficient way of walking while wearing the exoskeleton. The participants then took on an additional distracting task, listening to a series of tones and evaluating their pitch. Even while distracted, the walkers still adapted their stride to the most efficient way of walking. The authors suggest that finding the most efficient way to walk is an automatic activity that doesn't require much thought, 
a finding that could have implications for post-injury rehab. Stop for a break on your next walk and read that paper in full in the Journal of Experimental Biology. Targeting genome editing tools to the right part of the body could become much easier thanks to delivery vehicles made from a viral protein shell. Gene editing methods like CRISPR could be a promising way to treat many diseases, but it's a challenge to deliver the tools for these therapies to the right place in the body. With this in mind, a team of researchers created more than 5 million mutations of a type of virus with a protein shell called a capsid, eventually producing a family of capsids that enter muscle tissue much more efficiently than other delivery systems. The team tested these capsids by using them to deliver a healthy gene to mice with a muscle disorder. The new delivery system improved muscle function at viral doses 50 to 150 times lower than those currently being used in clinical trials of a gene therapy for the condition. The authors say that smaller doses of carrier virus could reduce the side effects of the therapy. Take a look at that research in full in Cell. Finally, on this week's show, it's time for the briefing chat, where we discuss some of the science stories that have caught our eye from the Nature Briefing. Noah, why don't you go first this week? What have you got? So I've not really got a news story as such, but it is an article that was in Physics World all about the sun's corona. Um, Now, I'm going to sort of pre-empt this discussion with I am not a physicist, but I'm going to try to give you a little overview of what was talked about in this article about the corona. And when we talk about the corona, then I guess... When there's an eclipse across the sun, you can see kind of the edge. I mean, you shouldn't look directly at it, right? It's super dangerous. But you can see this kind of maelstrom of, of, of sunlight. And that is the corona, right? Yeah, exactly. In a solar eclipse, the sort of bit that shines out over the outside of what the moon blocks, it looks a little bit like a crown, which is where corona comes from, is what the sun's corona is. Now, in the past, the only time you'd have ever really been able to see that is during an eclipse, because otherwise it's too faint to see. But there are also other tools that developed in the 20s called coronagraphs, which are essentially like little artificial moons inside telescopes that block out the sun and so allow you to see these very, very faint, wispy, interesting plasma surges, which is what the corona is made of, and allow scientists to study them. And they're very interested in the corona. And why are they interested in it right now, then, if they've been studying it since the 20s? Has something new come up? Well, the first actual drawings of the corona were literally centuries ago. We're not really sure how people saw that, because at that point, it would have had to be during an eclipse, and they're not very common. Anyway, the big kind of dilemma, which is what's got astrophysicists interested, is that the corona is about a million times dimmer than the sun, and yet it is about a million times hotter than the surface of the sun. And we know that because we can measure that. And there's a lot of questions as to how something that is so dim could also be so hot and how that fits with the way that the sun works as well. And it has been literally decades and decades of study to try to answer this question. And the spoiler alert, I'm not going to give you an answer. They still don't know. Really what this article was doing was trying to run through some of the possible ways in which the sun's corona could be created. Well, so what's being done then to figure out what's going on? So for a long time, scientists have been trying to study it using various missions. So back in the 70s, one of the big leaps that was made was a mission from NASA called Skylab, which went up into the atmosphere to study extreme ultraviolet rays and x-rays. And that found that the corona was emitting tons and tons of these highly charged particles, which were raining down over Earth. And thankfully, because of our magnetic field, we're protected from the worst of them. But they can screw around with all kinds 
kinds of other stuff. They can cause electricity blackouts on grids, even despite our magnetic field. They can interrupt various technologies in space and wreaking havoc with anything to do with radio equipment. So very, very important. And throughout the Second World War, the corona was also studied for this very same reason. Both sides invented their own versions of these coronagraphs because they're aware that the corona could interrupt things like navigation equipments. So... Out of all of this study, and there is still study that's going on today, there's currently a geostationary mission called the Solar Dynamics Observatory, another NASA mission that has been taking an image of the sun and its corona every second, 24 hours a day for seven days a week since 2010. But all of this research has kind of thrown up a bunch of different theories. So it's almost certainly to do with magnetic energy in some ways, but then there's questions around things called nano flares, something called alvin waves. A lot of scientists will say it's just a case of turbulence. But yeah, a lot of research into it. On this show, we often cover the, you know, incremental state of science and trying to work things out on this. What do you think scientists are clear on? And what do you think needs to be done to whittle down the competing hypotheses? I think scientists, and again, I base this on this article, are relatively clear on where the energy comes from. So the sun creates energy for its own existence in its core through fusion reactions. And about 0.001% of that energy that's created is converted into what's called free magnetic energy. And there have been calculations that have shown that this free magnetic energy is enough to power the corona. Now, the thing that's confusing people is how the energy gets from being this ordered free magnetic energy in the middle of the sun to this disordered, wispy, very hot result surrounding the outside of the sun. Part of the difficulty is that the thought is that the corona is made up of plasma, and plasma is essentially a liquid in many ways, and liquids are, as anyone that studied fluid dynamics will know, notoriously hard to study. And then electric fields get involved, but plasma and electric fields also gets very, very complicated on these kinds of scales. And there's a magnetic field generated by the sun, uh, and that actually caused an entire field of study called magnetohydrodynamics to be launched by a man called Hans Alphen, for which he eventually won the Nobel Prize for his studies. And again, that was back in the 40s. So an awful lot has happened, and I'm not going to be able to tell you what needs to be done to change it. But I do think that there's a lot of reasons that physicists are going to want to keep working on it, because it has really big implications for things like fusion reactors, for example, this sort of golden goose of many scientists to create unlimited free energy using fusion. If we can understand how energy is transported from the fusion reaction in the centre of the sun to the corona, we could have a lot better understanding of how to make better fusion reactors in the future, because a lot of those dynamics could help us explain the movement of the plasma within those reactors. Well, Noah, I mean, I do hope you'll join me again in however many decades it takes to figure out what actually is going on. But for the time being, let's talk about my story today. And it well, it couldn't be more different, to be honest with you. It's about toilet training cows. Yeah, it really couldn't be more different. Uh, I mean, the very obvious question I have to start with is why? Why are they doing that? I mean, that's a great first question, Noah. And well, it seems like quite a funny story to begin with, but it actually has got quite a sensible research aim. And it's about cleaning up the emissions of farms. And this is some research that I read about in The Guardian. And I actually had a look at the research paper. And they have this wonderful line in here, Attempts to toilet train cattle have been so far only partly successful. I don't want to spoil this story, but it turns out that things have improved and they're now pretty successful indeed. Right. Now, I have heard in the past of attempts to do things like feed cattle charcoal to help absorb methane, maybe even do things like put sort of 
nappies or diapers, I suppose you could say in the States, or filters on them to catch methane. But I'm assuming that toilet training them has nothing to do with methane here. So we're talking about ammonia. So we're talking about cow urine today. And the researchers behind this work said that, you know, cows have the excretion kind of machinery and the neurophysiology kind of similar to species that are capable of controlled urination. And as I say, it seems like they have. And and there are a few steps to it, but it seems what is key to this is a system of rewards and very, very mild punishments. So that's very much how I was toilet trained, I think. Um, I mean, I don't really remember it, but I think that's what happens. So my understanding of toilet training is getting, you know, your creature of note to do their ablutions in a particular place. So for me, it would be in a potty. For these guys, I'm guessing it's in a particular corner of the field. And they're going to tempt them to do that with treats and they're going to punish them if they do not. What are the treats and what are the punishments? Uh, well, OK, very, very close. And so so actually, in this case, it's in the corner of a barn. And so if some calves went and urinated in the right corner of the barn, they'd get a sweet drink or maybe a little bit of mashed up barley. So a nice treat. But if they didn't necessarily go to the right spot, then they'd get a very short blast of water from above. Just three seconds. So a very, very mild punishment. And it turns out that this seems to have worked. 11 of the 16 calves tested were successfully toilet trained and they reckon that the other calves might just have needed a little bit longer but in terms of yeah why is this important so urine from cows contains a lot of ammonia as we've said and that can leach into soils and that can pollute water systems and what have you but also it can be broken down by microbes in the soil which then release it as nitrous oxide which is a very very potent greenhouse gas. So by being able to get cows to urinate in one place and then collect it, it could be an interesting way to try and prevent this contamination and pollution. And in fact, the researchers say that if 80% of cow urine was collected, it would reduce the ammonia emissions by 56%. So not to be sniffed at at all. Absolutely. I mean, that really is significant. And you hear a lot about the carbon footprint of animal agriculture. Now, this is only a small part of that footprint, but every little helps here. I guess the biggest question I have is that this is 16 calves that have been um, trained to do this in this way. There are millions of calves on the planet. Is this going to be really a practical thing to try to do? Is this what researchers are even suggesting might be possible to sort of potty train all of the cattle in the world to try to reduce the carbon footprint because that's quite a lot of effort to go to well yeah i mean absolutely but but the researchers behind this are actually looking to kind of automate this process so farmers don't necessarily need to get involved at all and there is a quote in this article in the guardian where one of the researchers says that he hopes that in a few years all cows will go to the toilet i suppose one of the other big advantages of that is that it allows the cows to range freely and then come back and contain the urine because you could of course contain all of that urine by just keeping them standing still but then there are lots of reasons that that's not a very positive thing to do for the well-being of the cows and also for many other reasons and so you know this does seem like a best of both worlds approach i mean they do talk about welfare in this research paper as well because this could be a way of reducing contamination in living areas and and you know improving cleanliness and hygiene but at the same time trying to tackle emissions so kind of kind of a win-win on on both sides there great so cows going to the bathroom what are they calling their efforts well we'll say noah that this is being called the moo loo which is absolutely wonderful but let's leave it there shall we for today's briefing chat and listeners if you'd like to know more about both of the stories we discussed you'll find links to them in the show notes And if you want even more science stories like these delivered straight to your inbox, then be sure to sign up for The Nature Briefing. It's free. We'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. And that's it for this week's show. But before we leave you, just to say next Wednesday, there'll be no regular edition of The Nature Podcast because we've got something a little bit special for you. It's a series that me and some other colleagues here at Nature have been working on for three years years. Now, we are very, very excited to share it with you, but we can't say too much about it just yet. 
I have to say that I have already listened through this series and it is really something special. A bit of a roller coaster emotionally, but really, really worth tuning in for. So I hope you enjoy it. So yes, look out for that in the place of the regular show next week. And in the meantime, don't forget, you can drop us a line either on Twitter at Nature Podcast or email podcast at nature.com. I'm Benjamin Thompson. And I'm Noah Baker. Thanks for listening. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.